Well, good morning. Today's scripture reading is going to be in the Gospel of John, out of chapter 13. We will be reading verses 1 through 11. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles, or it'll also be on the screen behind me here. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not, only, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. And those words, um, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. It just hit me fresh this morning. The farther my sin gets away from my heart is by God's design that he remembers them no more. Let me pray for us and we can start. Father, the thing about your mercy is that we are in need of it whether we are aware of our need of it. That's why you tell us that Your mercies are new every morning. Certainly the other side of that equation is that we are in need of those mercies every morning. Lord, would you take your word, because the the, the power is not in the preaching, power is not in the praising, power is not in the people, the power is in your word. Lord, and who, who are we if we merely hear the word but are not changed by it? We are no different than those that don't know you. So would you come and sit amongst your people? Would you come and open our ears? Or give us wisdom. Give us application. Give us understanding on what John is intending for us to know in chapter 13. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> we'll be in John 13, 1 through 11. We'll be working through it. So if you do have your Bible, it's probably best to keep it out. Um, as we continue our march through the book of John, I don't want to recap, but it feels a little bit like um, watching Netflix with my wife. Um, She's horrible because she watches an episode, asks tons of questions, and then she doesn't watch the next 10 episodes. So we're in the middle right now of The West Wing. For me, it's the second time around. Huge fan. Uh, That's a full endorsement, by the way, if you've never seen it. Go go watch it immediately. Um, And she'll do that to me. I have to catch her up, like, every episode. It's just aggravating. So what I am going to do here, so I don't have to catch you up on all 13 chapters, if this is your first Sunday with us as we've been in John, let me just set the scene a little bit for you, and then we can dive right in. So, so we are at, at the point here, we're, we're coming down into the last 48 hours of Jesus' life. This would be Thursday, the day before the Friday where he is crucified. In the church calendar, it's known as Maundy Thursday. And so he has, Jesus, has had his disciples, and we know this from the other accounts in the Gospels, he's had his 
uh, disciples find a room, which we would famously know as the upper room, uh, for a place for them simply to eat together. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 13. They have sat down for dinner together, what will be his final dinner with his friends. And just culturally speaking, the way that tables worked in Jewish tradition is most often they would be very low setting and that individuals would, would lay on their sides, usually on their left side, so that they could simply eat with their right hand, which seems uncomfortable to me. Um, but, but they put their feet away from the table. So there will be some cultural significance to this feet washing that we see Jesus do, both socially as well as certainly spiritually. Let's just pick up in verse 1, and let's work through these verses together and see what we might, might glean from it. Verse 1, now before the, the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And, and John is really, when, when, when we see this phrase here, having loved his own who were in the world. We need to take that at face value. Jesus is literally, uh, John is literally saying Jesus loved his disciples. He loved them very much. These are his best friends. And so when we're talking here uh, about Jesus eating his final meal, there's a real emotional element to his friendship with these men. It, it, the, the word love there is, a, a lot of you may know there's three types of love in the Greek and uh, the one that gets all the FaceTime is agape love. This is not that. This is agapo love, which is a, a demonstrated love. So uh, he, he had been, through his entire ministry and friendship with him, demonstrating his love and affection. Uh, agapo is a, a desirous love. I see something. I feel desire and affection for it. Therefore, I demonstrate my love to it. And so when Jesus is talking about his, when John is talking about Jesus' love here for his disciples, it was a deep familial love. And it is significant that Jesus starts his last meal with these men on the basis of love. That is, that is not insignificant. In fact, these disciples would have already heard Jesus for years preaching about love. And we know just a few verses later in verse 34, Jesus actually says, the only way people are going to know that you are mine is by the way that you love one another. Now, certainly he means for them to be thinking like brothers need to love one another, that these men need to be loving to one another. But what Jesus would also have been speaking of regularly is love for neighbor. Now, in, Levitic, in Levitical law, particularly in chapter 19, the command is for this new people to love the Lord their God with all of their soul, their mind, and their strength. Jesus sinks the foundation deeper. Like, imagine a uh, a concrete footer going even deeper into the ground. Jesus says there, there's, a, there's a layer beneath that layer. It's not merely that you ought to love the Lord your God. You must take that love and love others. And so Jesus is adding another foundational element. He would have also talked with them, not just about loving one another and loving their neighbor, but loving their enemies which, have you ever tried that? I'm serious. Have you ever tried that? Remember that famous passage in Matthew when he says, you have heard that it is said, love your neighbor, but I tell you, love those enemies and pray for those that persecute you. It's just a different kind of love. It is not insignificant that he is starting this time together with them. Imagine, as a parent, if you had 48 hours left with your children, you're like running through the list, like what do I need to tell them? Jesus pops it off. First thing is love. 
I'm going to tell you about love, and then as we'll see, I'm going to show you love. As if you hadn't already heard this from me for the last three years, let me circle back around to it. And these, this is not in contrast to the Mosaic law from the Torah. This is in addition to. And we know later, this same disciple, in his first letter in 1 John, says that the only way that we can love is because we have first been loved. 1 John 4.19. You, you don't give away a dollar to someone just to do it. You give away a dollar because you've been given 10. And so our love for others can come from no place else than a real understanding of God's love for us. And so when Jesus is talking here, and we see, reading the verse again, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, in a very plain sense, John is intending for us to understand that Jesus is talking about his disciples, but we know just a few chapters later, in chapter 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, he says, Lord, I'm not only asking for them who you've given me, but for those that will come to know me through their words. So Jesus is also wanting us to understand that we are deeply loved and that he will love us until the end. Now, verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, this is some weird language. In fact, none of the other gospel accounts mention this language. I want to reread that. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Now, that sort of begs uh, lots of questions, maybe. What kind of power or free agency does Satan actually have? Now, we know that in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But one of my favorite Christian rappers, Shai Lin, has a song about this very thing, and here's what he says, and I'm not going to rap it. But I could. Uh, just a little quick aside. I, I, was, I was out in uh, the hallway talking with uh, Randy and Megan's son, Landon, uh, and uh, I said, hey, man, I heard you're at basketball camp. He said, yeah. And he looks up at me, he goes, I could beat you. I'm like, all right. I mean, I was a college athlete, but maybe you could. So I could definitely rap this, but I won't. He says, Satan is tempting people to make one of two major errors. One is saying that he, Satan, is not responsible for anything. The other is saying that he's responsible for everything. So one part of the church, all they do is speak on him, and the other part of the church is just as bad because they sleep on him. The point of John chapter 13 is not to talk about what Satan can or cannot do, but we are going to spend a few minutes talking about it because I think it's very important. So let's think for a minute. What can Satan do in the life of a believer and in the world? Satan can tempt people. He can tempt both Christians and non-Christians, and we know in 1 Peter, right, that he is prowling around like a lion, seeking to devour and destroy. Satan also accuses the brethren before the throne of God. So the, the tempter now becomes our accuser. That's Revelation 12. He can deceive us and convince us to sin. Adam and Eve, Jonah, David and Bathsheba, uh, Less popularly, but very important, Ananias and Sapphira, 
Acts chapter 5, where it says that Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Don't you listen. Satan can torment us. 1 Samuel 14. He can physically afflict us. Story of Job. But beloved, Satan's power in the world is both limited in its effectiveness and in its duration. This is certainly why Paul tells the church in Corinth, do not be ignorant to Satan's designs lest you be outwitted by him. This is why Paul tells the church in Ephesus to put on the full armor of God. Martin Luther, the reformer, famously believed that while the devil was real, he was God's devil. Meaning, the devil still has a boss. Now, what is more important is for us to understand what Satan cannot do. He cannot indwell or occupy a Christian. Church, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, the same Spirit that inserted himself into Jesus' dead body in the tomb and raised him from the dead is the one that we have living inside of us. Sealed is what Ephesians tells us. Satan cannot successfully charge us before the heavenly courtroom. Romans chapter 8, it is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? Doesn't matter how many guilty accusations he makes. The answer is the same. Satan cannot overtake us. I have in mind here uh, Luke chapter 21 where Jesus is talking to Simon Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, don't you know that Satan has demanded to have you and sift you like wheat? Let's be clear what's happening. Jesus is telling Simon, Satan has approached the throne of God and said, give me that one. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail you. And when you turn, when you're held, go and strengthen your brothers. Satan cannot overtake us. Satan cannot have our life. For we know that our times and our seasons are held in the hand of God. We know that every one of our days has been numbered before one of them came to be. We know that it is the Lord, Deuteronomy 32, that gives life and takes it. And church, finally, what Satan cannot do is keep the Christian from being brought complete and whole and blameless to the finish line. He cannot keep us from being presented in robes of righteousness before the Heavenly Father. Now, again, this is not the point of the sermon, not even the point of John chapter 13. We need to be aware because this is, this is not some instantaneous moment for Judas Iscariot. Satan had been working on him and his heart for some time. We know that Judas was stealing from Jesus and the disciples as they had their, their uh, roadshow ministry going on around the countryside of Israel. We know that Judas had given his heart over to his own desires and we don't need to be ignorant of Satan's, as, as Paul says, designs against us. 
Now, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that's Jesus' hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. The Greek word there, pasa, which is all things, it's a total, a complete, that every kind and all sorts of things have been given to Jesus. This is, would echo what we know Matthew says in chapter 28, that all authority has been given to Jesus. And we, we should know, because Ephesians tells us that, that the name of Jesus Christ sits on the mantle in all the cosmos and is the most powerful name with the most authority in this age or the age to come. But why does the text read that the Father had given all things into his hands? Was there a time that it wasn't in his hands? Is Jesus being knighted here with authority that he's never had before? What was Jesus' authority before this moment? I love, I love how John Piper synthesizes this. He said, Jesus was, always has been, always will be God. But here's the distinction. Before the incarnation, that's the moment in which Jesus Christ becomes a man. Before the incarnation, God the Son existed, but Jesus, the God-man, did not yet exist. Before the incarnation, God the Son existed with all authority, but the God-man, Jesus Christ, had not yet died for sinners. And the sentence of condemnation hanging over all of his people had not yet been stripped or taken from Satan's hands by the shedding of Jesus' blood. So yes, the Son of God always had total authority in heaven and earth, but when he had done the great work for redemption once and for all, God exalted him as the God-man, the Redeemer, the Risen One, to his right hand and now, as never before, put the rule of the universe and the mission of the church into the hands of a man, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, son of God. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, we will see here in the next few minutes that Jesus' scope and authority are the linchpin to the next eight verses. Verse 4. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist Becca tells me I say that word funny, towel, 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 taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Now, culturally, this is a, this is a, a pretty dumb thing to do. You, especially as a teacher, you, you don't derobe yourself. You don't lower yourself. Let's go back to the fact that these men are reclining, leaning into the table. They did that so that their feet were away from where the meal was being eaten so that whoever was washing their feet and cleaning them, they didn't have to look at them. Because even Jewish slaves wouldn't wash someone's feet. That was reserved for Gentile slaves. So for Jesus to be the one, and we see this in the next verse, that he poured out water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel 
that was wrapped around him. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to them because as uh, Dr. Joseph Dongle at Asbury Theological Seminary said, by each of these deliberate actions, taking his robe off, washing their feet, Jesus adopted the look and role of a slave. Now, there is a lot of symbolism here. A lot of things can be said about the meaning and purpose of Jesus washing these men's feet. Let's just consider a couple. Foot washing here is a window into humility. Remember, the disciples just a few verses earlier had been arguing who would be the greatest. And so as they see their master, who they know and believe, at least at some level, is the savior and the messianic king that was been prophesied about in the Old Testament, as they see him take a position of a slave, not even a Jewish slave, there has to be some angst among them. Is he going to ask me to do this? Is he going to demote me in this way? Am I going to be belittled in front of these other men, my friends? But Jesus is showing that this is what true humility is. Humility isn't, that's what it's like when you experience it, right? When you're on the other end of humility, it's almost like opening a commercial refrigerator and feeling that cool air just hit you in the face. It is so starkly different than anything that we regularly experience. And Jesus is intending for us to understand his humility here. Foot washing is also a window into servanthood. We know in Matthew chapter 20 that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And John, one of our other elders, is going to spend time unpacking that next week. Foot washing here is also meant to be an act of devotion and love. Going back to the agapo love, a demonstrated love. I love you so much, I'm willing to do anything. Now what they don't know, what they can't understand, is a mere hours later, he will go to the cross for them. I want you to stop for a minute, name five people in your life you're willing to die for right now. That's no little thing. And we can become immune to the reality that he died for us. No quick death either. Reminds me of that song, what is it? I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Foot washing here is also a picture of redemption. It's a picture of a daily renewal. We're going to hit on those two things in just a moment. Let's keep moving through, verse 6 and 7. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. You know, Peter's obviously known for the immediacy of his responses. Just a few moments later, he's going to chop some guy's ear off. He's then going to tell Jesus, I swear I will never deny you. And some little teenage girl's like, hey, weren't you walking around with Jesus? He's like, I don't even know who that is. Peter, in true character and form, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, to, 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 to sort of put ourselves in Peter's shoes for a minute, he's not wanting his Lord to feel shame. This is a heavy shame and honor society. So for Jesus to be put beneath even a slave, Peter said, no, 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 don't, 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 don't do that. But what's interesting probably is Jesus is demonstrating that in the heavenly economy, we are all priests. 
We are all co-heirs. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. Now what this doesn't mean is that we should ignore or suppress visible injustices that we see. And they are present. But what we see here with Peter is even in his concern for Jesus. Let me just, let me read it. Verse 8 and 9. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, what we can assume to be pretty directly, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is literally saying, If you are not washed by me, you are not with me. You do not have what I have. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and head. What's interesting is, this is sort of what it looks like for Peter or for us to resist the free, unearned, unmerited grace of Jesus. No, 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 no. I don't need that. Let's do this together, Jesus. It's my good efforts and actions plus what you did on the cross. I mean, think about when you're talking to someone and they're in a tough spot. How many times have you thought, What I just said there was pretty good. I bet they felt loved. Or you're serving one of your family members. I'm getting after it today. We both consciously and subconsciously dote ourselves in our own performance. And Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter here, is being told that if you're not washed, you have no citizenship in heaven. Philippians. You have no membership, no inheritance. And even though Peter is attempting, we can assume, to be thoughtful and careful, not wanting Jesus to be societally shamed in this moment, he's sort of prideful too, isn't he? He's telling the Lord what to do. Hey, I don't want you to feel shame, but listen, do it this way, okay? Just do it this way. We do the same thing. Lord, don't stretch my faith in that way. Lord, don't tell me my my actions don't count for anything. Lord, I I know you forgive me, but uh, what do I need to do to make it right? We live in this tension. Verses 10 and 11. We're ascending the mountain here, guys. We're getting to the peak. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. There's little doubt here. The disciples have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Sometime I'll, sometimes I look at my two-year-old and four-year-old especially, and I'll use too many words, and you just you see that like eyes glaze over look. I'm like, does that make sense? There's no response. The disciples certainly have an eyes glazed over look here. Like, what is he talking Just two days later, Jesus closed the transaction and the purchasing of our lives through the payment of his blood. There is a once and for allness to this cleansing that Jesus is giving us a picture. This is one of the reasons why we don't rebaptize. If you are baptized, you are baptized. This is why we don't re-ask Jesus into our hearts. If you have been covered 
beloved, then you have been covered. If Christ has cleansed you, you are cleansed. If Jesus has rescued you, you've been rescued. If the Son has made you free, then you are free indeed. There is a once and for allness. And one of the reasons John said what he did in chapter or in verse 3 is that all things have been given to Jesus because Jesus is the only one that can close that transaction namely the covering and washing of our guilt 130 years ago Charles Spurgeon in England was preaching a sermon called Knowing the Lord Through Pardoned Sin. And he says, No payment on our part, suffering or service, is required. The Lord pardons for his own name's sake. He blots out sin because he delights in mercy. I know him. I rejoice in him since he has so freely pardoned me. Now we get to what John is wanting us to begin to ask. Two questions, mainly. The first question, have you been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Now, John is creating two categories here, clean and unclean. I want to offer a third category. When we're talking about nothing but the blood of Jesus, everybody who has ever lived falls into one of three categories. The first is what we see in Romans 1, that they live by their own desires. That they are blind to the beauty and the mercy of the Lord Jesus, that the God, both visible and invisible, is dead to them. And they have been turned over to their own sinful desires. There's also a second, what, what I will say, scarier category. There, there are... There are, and I believe there are in this room, very likely, a group of people that believe that they know Jesus. They've convinced themselves that they are a child of God, but yet they know God no more than they know Michael Jordan. Matthew chapter 7 says that many will come to me on that day, on that final day, and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these things in your name? And he says to them, I never knew you. That there's a group of people that have been, as Hebrews tells us, positively impacted by the community and people of God but have no share with him. That they almost by osmosis have received the power and benefits of God's economy and they've never had anything happen in their heart. That there is a group of people that are convinced that they know him, but they are in fact not known by him. I don't mean to suggest that you ought to have doubt about your own position or standing before the Lord, but I also do not want to offer you false assurance. When I was in college, maybe 20 years old, I was out in Orlando for the summer, and I had a, a young man, his name was Parker, and we were talking and we were working through some of the theological hurdles that Romans chapter 8 presents and I look at him and I tell him exactly what the text says which is nothing can separate you from the love of Christ 
neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor darkness nor principalities. And I get back to my room and I just felt this overwhelming sense of conviction from the Holy Spirit. And I call him and I said, brother, it is not my place to assure you that you are right with the God of the universe. I do not know if his love for you at this moment is deeper and wider than you know. Only you can know that. He finds me the next morning. He said, Justin, I realized last night after our conversation that I had never, ever bowed my knee to Jesus. And last night was the first, I don't know why I feel like I could cry. Last night was the first night in my life that I knew Jesus. And so I don't mean to present this in a condemning or uneasy way, but I am fairly certain that there are ears in this room right now who are pretending and are imposters and have never, ever let the love and blood of Jesus wash over them. And then there's a third category. And it's for those that Colossians 2 tells us, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So John chapter 13 is asking us, have you been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ? And for this third group of people, those that have been washed and covered for all of your sins being cast into that sea without bottom or shore, there's a second question in this text. Are you being washed every day by the blood of Jesus Christ in the renewing of your mind and the growth of your faith. If you've been washed and you've been covered, are you being washed and renewed every single day? Jesus has certainly cleansed us from the consequences of our sin in an, in an eternal sense. And we know that some of those effects of sin, like shame, like guilt, it, guilt and shame just, guilt is action-based. I feel guilty because I did X. Shame is a sense in which we feel a humiliation or a uh, distress just because. And that's not my definition, that's Merriam-Webster. Micah chapter 7 says, he has pardoned our iniquity. Jesus has freed us from sin. He has unshackled our chains that we are no longer bound to our own sinful desires like that first group of people in Romans chapter 1. He has freed our minds. Imagine this, prior to you bowing your knee to Jesus, your mind was in the hands and grips of Satan. And Jesus Christ has taken those fingers off and he has freed our minds to be renewed. What Romans tells us that the flesh gives birth to the flesh, or sin gives birth to sin, but that the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. We can, like Philippians 4, we can think about what is true, what is noble, what is right, what is good, what is pure, what is excellent. Jesus has given us access to this. And Paul, when he's pinning his second letter to the church in Corinth, in chapter 5, he, he says, For the love of Christ 
controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. That those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, prior to Jesus' death, the command from God was obedience. That's what the law is. But we know that the law was meant to be established to show us that obedience isn't enough. It's never enough. That there's obedience with righteousness. And only Jesus has the power to declare someone not guilty and then simultaneously righteous. It's not like the the courtroom in heaven is like, oh, we let that one go. Got a lousy justice system here. There's a declaration of not guilty and a simultaneous declaration of righteousness, whole, pure. This is the picture here when uh, Paul says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of Christ. It's this image of what we see Jesus doing, taking off his robe. He's taking off his robes of righteousness and he's placing them on us. Henry Nouwen, and we're going to finish. Henry Nouwen, the Catholic priest, this little short book, The Selfless Way of Christ, Downward Mobility in the Spiritual Life. He says this, The spiritual life is the life of the Spirit of Christ in us, a life that sets us free to be strong while weak, to be free while captive, to be joyful while in pain, and to be rich while poor, to be on the downward way of salvation while living in the midst of an upwardly mobile society later in his book he he says that the temptations that jesus experienced in the desert were three things the temptation to be relevant spectacular and powerful relevant spectacular and powerful and that we are tempted in the same way But for those that have been washed by the blood of Jesus, we don't need to be relevant, spectacular, or powerful because we are Christ's. Beloved, we are His. And He is ours. Let's consider today, this week, are we swimming upstream into the love and presence of Christ, the renewal of our mind, the strengthening of our faith? And now is a good time as we move into communion to consider these things. And let me just say that if, if you are operating independent of God's holy design and command, if you are currently living as the king of your own universe, or if you are unsure whether or not you have put on someone else's faith and it is not real for you, communion is not for you. But what the time of communion is, is an opportunity for you in a way that you've never had before is to grasp hope. Come find me. We can pray together. We can confess together. We can put on the righteousness of Christ together.
Let's finish with this. That old hymn before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. You are not your worst sin. You are not your deepest secret. Beloved, you are Christ's. And he will bring you. He will finish the work that he started. Let me pray for us. Lord, I don't even know what to say. But I know even in these moments that you are interceding for your people, that you sit at the right hand of God the Father and you are praying the words that every heart in here needs. Jesus, continue to pray for your people. Your prayers will hold us fast. Father, as we finish our time, do whatever you'd like to whomever you'd like. For your glory, for our conscious happiness. Renew our minds individually and as a people so that we like you told your disciples, we might be known by our love, by our aroma, by our pursuit of a downward mobility into the humility and servanthood of Jesus Christ. Amen.